0: and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. This is your friendly neighborhood talent strategist, Dr. Jim. If you never crack the code of productive conversation, you're, you'll struggle building elite teams. Who better to help us figure that out, than someone who has built elite global talent acquisition teams in industries as different as manufacturing and technology. We have Shalia Gray joining us today, and let me give you a little bit of background on her story. She's got a well-established TA leadership career at some of the best-known global brands. She's currently the VP of talent acquisition in Generac, and prior to that, she's led transformative talent acquisition initiatives in global tech and manufacturing organizations. She's a charter member of the Association of Talent Management Professionals and a lifetime member of the National Association of African Americans in Human Resources. Shalia holds an MBA from Northeastern University and a bachelor's in industrial labor relations from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Go Tar Heels. She's also received certifications in change management, HR outsourcing, and contingent labor. Shalia Gray. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that great welcome.
0: Happy to have you on here. And I crammed in as much as I could in the bio in that intro, but I know that there's more to your story than just that. So the first order of business is for you to fill the listeners in on some of the stuff that we left out that you feel is going to be important for them to know about you and also will inform the the conversation that we're going to have.
1: I guess what I would say about me is that I have a passion for TA. I've been in a long time. I started off when it was staffing and followed it through recruiting till it matured into talent acquisition. I love it because it moves at the speed of the market. So I've seen it go from job fairs and ads in newspapers to to scanning for resumes to software as a service. To where we are now i have worked in small organizations large organizations and organizations that have taken me around the world and i loved ta and i find ta there is never two days that are the same i like problem solving i like learning about labor markets and i feel that in the last i'm going to say last 10 to 15 years it's become a global talent market and the professionals that do this work have to understand the intricacies of employment law GDPR and data privacy. Now has come artificial intelligence. There's so many different things there. So to know anything about me is I can talk forever about TA and the things that are changing in the market. And so I love this space.
0: I'm curious how the time that you spent in staffing and recruiting, how that prepared you for your overall career. I
1: spent time at a consulting firm doing placements, working with candidates. I spent a lot of time understanding the candidate market and the candidate experience really well. Uh, I also understood about selling the business and selling the services of our organization and selling the, the candidates they had in marketing. And early on, I made the analogy between the recruiting world and the sales world, is that we're both marketeers. We're both marketeers. And in both worlds, We have to understand what we're marketing. We have to understand the story that we're telling, and we have to find a way to present it really well. And so when I went inside and started to work inside of corporations, the first thing I had to understand was, what is the value that we offer? What's the story we need to tell? And what do we need to do to attract people into the organization? And what do we need to do to listen to the candidate market? And I did that early on before it became candidate experience. And I did it early on before it became employment branding, which is what it is now. It's understanding what your brand is. When you
0: look at that experience, how is that even more critical in today's employment landscape than it was maybe even back then?
1: We go through ebbs and flows in our market, in our talent market. At some point, it was the employer had the upper hand. We did. And when we had the upper hand, we were offering employee loyalty, pension plans, job security, all of that. And then I saw in the mid-80s, when we did our first set of layoffs for mid-management and companies like IBM and Digital Equipment Corporation, I'm going back old names now. And we started to to change the landscape and change that contract with employees. Employees viewed their employment a lot different in terms of job security. Then we did the dot-com bust in the early 2000s and all of that. But COVID, I think, has racked, has changed our landscape more than anything that we ever went through. Because I think we, for a long time, employees were always, work has to be done a certain way. There's no other way to do it. When COVID happened, we were able to drop ship laptops within 24 hours. People were able to work at home. Productivity didn't stop. And we were able to find a way to adjust. That showed our employers that we are resilient and we can get work done. While we were at home, employees really started to think about the things that mattered to them. Their home space, how they worked, their families, the amount of time away. They also looked at how companies valued their commitment to their organization, which was working through a lot of the challenges that were placed upon them. I think when we came out of COVID, the employee's ask of the employer value proposition changed, and it will go back. Uh, I think candidates now asking for remote work. They are evaluating our benefit structure much more with a fine-tuned code than they ever did before because they understand what their benefits mean. They think about that time off and how work gets accomplished. They're also uh, asking questions about a development of the organizations. And I think that they are also uh, viewing organizations differently. And many people checked out of the traditional workforce and started doing gig and project work that are, may never come back. And I think also a lot of start startup businesses formed, especially we see that in numbers in terms of women and people of color started startup businesses during that time. So I think that the workforce changed and I don't think it'll go back.
0: It's interesting to hear you mention that you don't believe that the workforce is going to go back to the way it was pre-pandemic. And I agree with you. What makes that position interesting is that you see this broad cross section of leaders that are adamant that we're going to flip a switch and bring everybody back on site. And there's not going to be any more remote work and any of that sort of stuff. It seems obvious why that would be a mistake, but I'd be curious to get your lens on it, especially from an employer branding perspective and how that's Potentially disconnected from what you just mentioned, what employees care about now that they've navigated successfully a pandemic.
1: I think employers believe that the key ingredient to a culture and engagement is, is employees being together. And that is one thing we didn't master in COVID, which was working virtually and why working virtually can work. That's the piece that we didn't master our senior leaders understanding that you didn't have to see someone every day. I I will tell you, I found that I had many more meaningful conversations in in COVID than I did outside of COVID because when I booked time with someone during COVID, I had their undivided attention. Before COVID, there were meetings with other people, there were distractions going on, and I felt I had more one-on-one time. But many of our leaders, if you hear their justification for it, it's all about culture. When I heard Elon Musk, it's like, why well, have people, how are they going to bond and be friends and all that? It's because they believe our culture suffers when we're not there. I, in the back of my mind, now I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but in the back of my mind, I've always wondered if they felt like robotics and AI is their plan B, if we as employees don't live up to the proposition that they have, that they'll replace us. The issue right now when they talk about coding, is AI going to replace coders, right? Or in the recruiting world, AI, the biggest area of AI is assessments, that uh, AI can do assessments. In the back of my mind, I've always wondered, have companies been plotting our, our replacements if we don't fall in line? I just wondered that in the back of my mind.
0: I don't think that's a conspiracy theory because if you look at the state of the world of work today and you tie it back to how employers treat employees in broad terms, Mm -hmm. it's all rooted in the Jack Welch mentality of what is the function of business and the function of business is to maximize shareholder value. Oh, absolutely. That's the only thing businesses are around for. And every year you have to whack like the bottom 10, 15% of your employee population regardless of how long they've been there, regardless of how historically good that they've been. So you're seeing that element of it. I think that's absolutely true.
1: But you forget that's what business is there for. But there's a whole part of the business that, that creates the Wizard of Oz experience behind the curtain, which has employees believing because we give you free food, because we give you stock options or RSUs, because we pick you up for parking and all of those other things that there's some loyalty that we're building with you. And so employees have that belief. That's why it was really hard when the doc, when a lot of the software companies had never done layoffs last year or this year, did layoffs. Those people took it very hard, not because they were being laid off, because they had some very generous packages, but their covenant was broken because they didn't believe that would be a part of their culture. I hear what you're saying. It is very true. I always tell people Businesses will always do what's in the best interest of the business, but we give the illusion that you're in the best interest of the business. And at the end of the day,
0: you're not always. One of the things that was important that everybody echoed through the pandemic is when you're thinking about loyalty, you don't owe loyalty to any company, really. You Mm. owe loyalty to the people that are your close friend groups and your family. Because the reality of it is that the expectation that your company is going to be loyal to you it's completely misguided because think about it you could drop dead tomorrow and they're gonna have, we'll have, discri-
1: yeah, have, have a position Yeah, I have a temp. They'll call me, they'll call me first thing in the morning and ask for a temp. But see, there's that parent child relationship. And uh, remember, I, when I said I start off in agencies in the beginning, I also work with people who got laid off and I never remember counseling. I remember counseling people who'd worked for years at IBM and they couldn't get move on to look for another job because they were still hurt by all the time and effort they put in and the fact that they felt that the company betrayed them. And I said, there was not a betrayal there. The organization changed its model. It went from selling hardware to a different model. And so it shifted and the people became redundant and the structure had to change. But they, that's the piece. And that, that's what hurts the most whenever there's a situation is people take it as a personal thing. And it's not personal. It's a business decision.
0: Now, that's a good point. I'm a Gen Xer, so this is new thinking for me, but it's not new thinking for millennials or Gen Z, right? But one of the conversations that I have with a lot of people is you need to be compartmentalizing how you allocate your resources and time spent across things. You certainly should be putting in what you need to put in to do your job well, but you should also be cultivating those things around you from a skill set perspective that can give
1: you a position to create multiple revenue streams. What's also interesting is the U.S. system is built around the compensation. That's why we build our system around even when we lay people unemployment, all that. Many of the other countries, I think have it right. They build their system around retention. Even their works councils and everything is around job security. So they they've been trying to keep their contract with their employees around loyalty where I think we've been eroding ours over time. It's interesting
0: that you mentioned the difference between sort of the European lens on the Mm employer-employee contract and the American lens between employer-employee contract. You mentioned the emphasis on development and retention in the European context Mm -hmm. and how that's not necessarily showing up as much in the U.S. context. Share with us a little bit more about why that distinction is important and what implications that has for the business.
1: I think in the U.S., we used to have a system that was really built on people working till retirement age. That's why we had the pension plans and all those things. And those things went away and we started making it our responsibility with 401k to invest in our retirement, all those things. When we think about the loyalty piece, that's why in many situations when it's involuntary, we do unemployment, we do severance packages, we do those type of things, which are short, short remunerations for the fact that you are losing your employment. In other countries, the most important thing is to be gainfully employed. It's not about making it to the next job. It's about keeping your job or or the effort you've put into the job. So there's, much, there's a very different attitude. I can't remember which country. I'm going to say it was China, where I was doing a layoff one time. And when I went to do the layoff and I was going through the country rules, one of the country things was the person could decline the layoff or decline that their job go away. And I was like, they can make that decision? I was like, yes, they can make the decision that their job doesn't, you can restructure them, you can find another way, but they can decline that their job not go away. I, I thought that concept was interesting. That concept also takes place in other parts of Europe where it's about people continuing to be gainfully employed as opposed to moving on. People want to stay employed, and, that, and that's a very different thing.
0: I'm thinking about what you just said. That would be such a powerful impact in the U.S. context, where if you had some restructuring that happened, restructuring in the U.S. context typically means, oh, a whole bunch of people are going to get whacked. But if you actually look at it the way that you described it, what if employees were given the option of, uh, hey, are there other positions that I might be suited for? Or can I get trained to occupy a different role in a different division and still maintain employment? Look at the trends that are going on in the U.S. employee landscape. It's about upskill, reskill. It's about building a succession plan. It's talking about continuing education. Well, all of those things should be on the table if you're really talking about a restructure. So I'm thinking through that. I don't think I've ever heard of a U.S. company offering that as part of their restructuring plan.
1: One company I saw did that. When I worked in Phoenix, Intel did that. Intel allowed people that were doing tuition reimbursement or whatever to continue their degrees, even though they got let go, they continued uh, paying for it and all of that. But in that vein, the other thing I was going to say that in addition to that that separation piece, I always thought was interesting in the European market is when people leave jobs, this is European and some of the Asian markets too, because I know India does this. There's this concept of the notice period when we give notice here, it is a courtesy to do two weeks most of the time, even though people sometimes do less, but it's a courtesy to do two weeks. And why do we do that? And why do we want people to leave right away? I think there's a non-trust factor when someone gives notice. In Europe, I always thought it was interesting. Many countries have up to four or five months of a notice period. So you have got a new job and you have to stay at your old job. For up to three months. It it would be unheard of in the U.S. Because you think about it, you're losing out on a new salary, a new opportunity. We would think, could they possibly be stealing intellectual property? There's a trust factor there. And I know in India, when I had that in India, I could buy out their notice period. In Europe, many countries I couldn't, but I could buy out their notice period. But can you imagine if we told someone here you have a new job, but would you have to stay three months? Oh, the morale, the, the thought of death, the thought of them yeah. being mean at us. There's no concept of that in Europe. No concept. Wow.
0: It's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact Community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. And now, back to the show. We're taking the HR Impact Show on the road. As a loyal listener to the HR Impact Show, we'd like to invite you to join us live at the 2024 Transform Conference at the Wind Resort in Las Vegas from March 11th through the 13th. Transform brings together people-driven leaders, investors, and innovators across industries and backgrounds with a shared passion for people, innovation, and transforming the world of work. The 2024 Transform Conference is going to be the best yet. Here's what you can expect. Innovative showcases, probing conversations, hands-on learning experiences, 300-plus speakers, and more. Join us and let's shape the future world of work together. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So one of the things that that I mentioned when I began the show was that if you never crack the code for productive confrontation, Mm -hmm. you'll struggle in building elite teams. How does that tie together when you were building teams and how you had built a track record of building elite teams?
1: I built all kinds of teams, small teams, big teams. I will tell you my the biggest epiphanies I've had is when I've worked with global teams and I've had to build them. They're the ones who. Really give me the biggest learning experiences. One because they're virtual, and there's many more factors at play. But um, I always start off because one of the things that I, I really did is, and I've gone through a lot of learning assessments, center of creative leadership, all those kind of things. But um, there's two things that always stood out. One is speed of trust, and two is the uh, five dysfunctions of a team. So with the five dysfunctions of a team, it talks about the elements of what what will prevent a team from functioning very well. And I start off with those elements, and I look at those with my team, and I try to address them and make sure those pieces are in place first. And so with working with elite teams, that's the first piece. And i would say the number one piece, I think, with teams is communication. Because I think sometimes people mistake individuals working together for being a team. And they're, they're, that's not the same thing. And you can tell that in a sport, A team is sitting on the same bench. A team pitches can go in for each other and has no animosity for someone being on the floor, on the field, uh, for each other, because they recognize each individual has a strength that needs to be used. And the greater good is to win, right? It's not about someone making the most baskets or someone making most rebounds or the most field. It's about the team winning. That's how you get incentivized is team winning. And so I start off with the dysfunctions of a team. I start off with the communication. Then we start off about accountabilities, people understanding roles and responsibilities and build from there. But I think if you start off with how to fail, you will succeed.
0: I'd like you to expand on something that you mentioned, which is the speed of trust and how that's related to building a high communication culture. And you said that you've learned the most in your roles when you had global teams. Tie that all together. How do you build trust? in a globally distributed environment to create enough of a communication culture where people can productively confront and then move forward together.
1: When it comes to speed of trust, I believe that you have to see each other. And what I mean by that is, I don't mean, I don't mean literally see each other, but you have to see each other for who you are. In dealing with global teams, there are cultural norms that exist in your culture. And there are things about you as an individual that you're going to have to reveal to others in other for the, in order for them to work successfully with you. And so if you think about the military, a formula of forming, norming, storming, performing, you have to form first. So for me, that's the first piece is that we have to see each other. I had an example where I had a person who was in one of my offices in China and she had to go out on a sick leave and she didn't want to tell me she was going out on sick leave. I found out she's going out on sick leave, which in America, I don't ask. In China, you can. In America, I don't ask. But I know you're going on sick leave and I know your work has got to be covered. And her vulnerability was she was concerned about going out on sick leave and immediately brought the team together to talk about how we support her and what she needed. And the first thing we all said to her is that we empathize that you're going to be going out on sick leave and we want you to not have to think about anything while you're gone but your health and to come back to us in one piece. That's what we care about. Now, how do we ensure that everything you do, do gets done so that when you come back, there's nothing that you feel like you have to get caught up on. And, and then we, as a team, divided the workout. Now, the first piece was for everyone to recognize that you are not taking on someone else's burden. You're being a part of someone's solution because there will be a time, and there were times for all of the team when they were going through something, whether there was a ramp up, a project or something, that we did that same kind of meeting about them and how we got stuff done. But that was the first time the team had ever done that. I joined the organization, it's the first time the team had ever done that and thought of themselves going across borders and boundaries, having a conversation, pitching in, and offering to help as opposed to someone doing that. After that, it broke the groundwork for someone raising their hand when they needed help. That's a
0: really great example. And if I understand it correctly, you said that this was early on in your uh, tenure there. That sounds to me like there had to have been some infrastructure in place where everybody was comfortable saying that sort of stuff. So I guess what was your line of sight into what existed in that environment that allowed that person to be vulnerable when you joined early in the team and that, that got everybody else to pitch in to make sure that person could focus on their recovery versus like how much work would be there uh, when they got back? Because
1: I don't imagine that happening out of the blue. There was an offline conversation with the person going out when I found out they were sick. I wanted to know why they didn't feel comfortable sharing with me they were going out. And what was their biggest concern? And what made me empathetic was their biggest concern wasn't their health. But their biggest concern was that I might replace them or their job may not be there when they got back. That was their biggest concern. So my conversation with them was, how do we give you peace that won't occur? That was my conversation. How do we give you peace that won't occur? Because your focus should be your health, not your job.
0: So that right there actually leads me to another question. So I think when we think about leadership best practices, that's really where we all should be, where we should be prioritizing the big picture and be people-centric in terms of how we respond to things that we find out. That wasn't your first rodeo when that sort of thing happened, but what did you do consistently across your career? that allowed you to have those types of conversations and have people respond. What
1: I'm gonna say that I didn't always do it. I've lost employees. And when I've lost employees, I will always do an exit myself to say, how did I show up to you? And what could I have done differently? And I am your biggest cheerleader and your biggest advocate as you build your career outside of this company. And I want you to know that I will always be there for your reference or whatever tell me what I could have done differently. And the people who are the honest with me have told me where I've missed it. And where I've missed it was not seeing or hearing or understanding something. Hearing, seeing, understanding, understanding their workload, seeing them, missing some clues I should have been. And those things over time weigh on you and you become better at it, is what I'm going to say. You become better. If a child pulls on your pants enough. You're on the phone, you're getting to do a lot of work, children pull on your pants and you just ignore it. And then something happens to the child. They fall, they have an accident, whatever. That's a sign that you needed to have done something differently. If you don't, and the next time they pull, if you don't do it, you're having the same outcome. So I I learned from mistakes that the most important thing as a manager and as a leader as I can do is listen and notice those signs. Early on, I went through my my Myers-Briggs and I was an F. But I'm going to tell you, the longer I stayed in corporate America, the more the F went away. So on all teams that I have, I've got to hire an F. I've got to have someone that's a feeler that, you know, has the heart of the people, that brings it up on a regular basis. And I always find someone on my team that's an F. But I realize that those mistakes make me have to realize that I need to be very conscious of nonverbal clues as much as I am verbal of clues that my teams give me. I have no qualms about apologizing for mistakes for both my team to others, which allows people to know that they can always give feedback to my team and give feedback to me. Because if I mess up or my team messes up, we will apologize and get it right.
0: Real good stuff. So one of the common things that happens when people are new managers in organizations is that they focus on managing to the metrics instead of leading people. And what you just described is a people-centric leadership approach. So if somebody is new into management, and they want to be deliberate about being people-centric, what are the things that they need to be doing so that they're not stuck behind spreadsheets and instead aligning themselves in a way where they can see those warning signs much earlier? I've been
1: to a lot of classes and seen a lot of stuff. I would say that the methodology around situational leadership, which is each situation is different. What I tell people always is that people that are black and white thinkers have a hard time in HR. When they have a harder time in TA, because there's more, you're managing more of the gray spaces. You are managing more of the gray spaces. A leader is the same thing. Um, I find that the best leaders are ones that can manage for the situation at hand and understand how to bring the best out of people. And so new managers coming in, I'm going to say all that stuff you read, all those great business cases, all those things about being a great manager, those are the basics. The reality is when the rubber meets the road, and that's when you are sitting before your people, when you're talking with your people. There are going to be company guidelines, company policies and all that, and then there is going to be the reality of managing your team, and there, they can be two different things. So you're going to have to think about managing to the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And what I found that when I'm managing with my people, I end up managing to the spirit of the law in getting things done because I need to do what's best for my team to keep them engaged, motivated, developed.
0: So Shalia, this has been a really great conversation. And I think when we're looking at the foundational things that we need to do to build the type of productive confrontation, productive conversation cultures, I think we've set the stage here. The thing that I'd be curious to hear from you is if there's somebody listening, that wants to make a pivot and become this sort of leader, become this sort of uh, person who can have these conversations,
1: how do they get started? One of the things that I think around good leaders and people who can make a pivot is being authentic, being authentic leaders, And, and there's many books on that too. But I'm going to say uh, being an authentic leader is is seeing yourself as others see you and recognizing what you can change and recognizing what you can't change. And that's important. I know that there are certain things about me as a leader that I will work, continually work hard on throughout my whole career because it's important to me about how I show up with the teams that I'm with. And there are certain things about my personality and who I am that I know I, I probably can't change. I am real about that with the people I interact with, my teams, the organizations that I work with. I'm very honest about the, about it. So one of the things that I always say, I sometimes don't have a filter. It doesn't mean that I'm, I'm inappropriate. If you ask me an opinion, I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking. I'm going to think about the audience as I phrase it, but I'm going to be honest with you in terms of my opinion. I've also learned that works, and I and that works with my employees too. And I will say to them, I will always give you balanced feedback. I will never, ever give you just one type of feedback if I am trying to develop you or I'm trying to help you. I will always give you on time, which is point in time. I never wait to a performance review. It's real-time feedback, and I will always give you balanced feedback.
0: The thing that I want to highlight in what you just mentioned is the on-time and real-time feedback component of it, especially when it comes to building the type of culture that you want as an organization. And the reason that it stood out to me is I've seen so many organizations that do a yearly review and maybe they have a six month check-in. The reason why I have this negative reaction against that is it can lend itself to so much bias in so many different ways because you're not doing it frequently enough. And the other thing is that because you're only doing it once or twice a year, it becomes an administrative task versus a development task. If you're looking at it from a leadership Mm -hmm. perspective, your job is to build other leaders.
1: One of my pet peeves is to to have a manager who brings me to my annual performance review and has me do the whole write-up and them have done nothing and and then have the conversation. When I meet with my team and I meet with my people, I have met with them all year long, and so I come excited about the performance discussion that we have at the end of the year, and it's uh, because it's a summation of what we've talked about all year long, and I'm one of those people that doesn't like surprises, so I never like to surprise anyone else,
0: and I totally agree. I had to duck my head because I've been in many of those organizations where you as the employee fills out the review, (laughs) fills out the narrative. And then you send it to your leader and they'll make some perfunctory comments One sentence, one
1: sentence comment, like they agree. And I'm saying, like, I spent the whole year doing the work. I spent the time doing the evaluation. Least you could do is glowingly copy it from somewhere.
0: The big takeaway from this part of the conversation is if you're listening to this and you're that person that's having your reports fill out the review and you're adding just one line to it, don't do that. Don't. Don't be that person. Shalia, I think before we wind down, what I'd like you to do is think about the conversation that we've had and pick out two or three critical points that the listeners need to pay attention to when they're trying to build this high communication and productive confrontation culture.
1: I'm going to say, don't be afraid to lead. That's the first thing. I find a lot of times people don't go into leadership or management because they're they're good individual contributors, and they have a good skill set, and they're concerned about failing when it comes to what they consider the managing the other pieces of the people equation. And I'm going to say that some people do fail, but not all fail. And, it's, and, and we need people that are good technicians and people that can be those good leaders with others because they themselves can model the behavior that's been passed down to them. That's the first thing. The second thing is we talked a little bit about um, confrontational conversations. Difficult conversations are part of what this role has with it. And I always tell my team that um, many people don't like confrontation. I come from a family where confrontation is just fun for us because we don't feel that confrontation has to be bad, has to be abusive, and has to be negative. Confrontation is addressing an issue real time. And if you lead the confrontation, you can lead the outcome. And the confrontation is as simply as when I don't get something I'm paid for in the grocery store, going up to the desk, asking, this wasn't included. What can I, what can you do? But it's about understanding that confrontation is not something that you dread. It is something that can be rich. It is a part of what we do. And for our employees, it is how we confront problems, situations, And what I found is that for senior leaders, a lot of times, the ones that get to roles where they stall out, is because no one confronted the behavior earlier and they say to me, no one's ever told me that before. And that's sad to me that they got to that level and did that. And then thirdly, I'm going to say that global teams, I mentioned that I had global teams add so much richness to your life. They really do. And even as you go through things, they they add dimensions to you thinking about people in a very different way.
0: Awesome stuff, Shalia. If people want to continue the conversation, what's the best way to get in touch with you?
1: They can always email me. I have a work email, which is shalia.gray at generac.com. And I will absolutely respond to their emails. And I, I always appreciate dialogues like this. I told you, I could talk about TA, I talk about it with my with my Uber drivers. When I ask them what do they do and why they drive and they like their jobs. So I could talk about this all day long, so feel free to reach out to me.
0: Thanks for hanging out with us. When I think about this conversation that we've had, there's one major thing that kind of sticks out and it's all nested under this question of what sort of leader do you wanna be? And there's a couple of different paths that you can take. You can take the transactional route where a leader is a position of authority, Or you can take the transformational route where a leader's responsibility is to develop their people. Now, depending on which route you take is going to have an impact on what you actually do. And you referenced this early in the conversation is that the goal is for you to get to a spot where the speed of trust and the speed of teamwork is accelerated. And the thing that stands out about that concept is that you can't execute this in a paint-by-numbers way. You can't execute this behind a spreadsheet. You have to be people-centric in what you do, and you have to meet people where they are and have meaningful conversations so that you're laying the groundwork for that trust. The example that you gave where the team came together to solve a problem where somebody was leaving due to a health issue, that doesn't happen just because you will it. It happens because people are seeing each other, are hearing each other, and are present for each other. For those of you who have uh, hung out with us and listened to this conversation, we appreciate you, uh, checking us out. Leave us a review. Let us know what you thought of the conversation. Tune in next time where we'll have another great leader joining us and sharing with us the game-changing realizations that they had that helped them build a high-performing team.